that this is a sharp departure from traditional Saudi decision making. This is Saudis assuming a more decisive, is kind of the, the, the word that's always used, mm -hmm. decisive decision, decision making. Some would say reckless. from abroad. This podcast is part of the Middle East and South Asia Initiative in the College of Sciences at the University of Central Florida. My name is Roxanne Trombetta. Our mission here is to educate, engage, and influence the international community. Today, I am joined by Dr. Gonung Toll and Mr. David Dumke. So that listeners are aware, Dr. Toll is the director of the Center for Turkish Studies at the Middle East Institute. She was an adjunct professor at the College of International Security Affairs at the National Defense University and currently teaches at George Washington University's Institute for Middle East Studies. She has taught courses on Islamist movements in Western Europe, Turkey, world politics, and the Middle East. She has written extensively on Turkey-U.S. relations, Turkish domestic politics and foreign policy, and the Kurdish issue. She is also a columnist for The Radical, a Turkish publication. As for Mr. Dumke, he is the Director of the Office of Global Perspectives and International Initiatives here at UCF, and is responsible for overseeing all the programs and centers under that umbrella. He is also the Founding Director of UCF's Chris Mohammed bin Fahid Program for Strategic Research and Studies, as well as the Office for Middle East and South Asia Initiatives. After spending the early part of his career working in the U.S. Congress, Mr. Dumke has accumulated a diverse set of professional experiences in several fields, including politics, government affairs, public relations, business, and academia. He also teaches Middle East politics, diplomacy, and U.S. foreign policy, is a regular participant at national and international conferences, and has written extensively on American foreign policy. Dr. Toll, Mr. Dumke, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Awesome. So firstly, I would like to congratulate you two on your new publication. It's called Aspiring Powers, Regional Rivals, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the New Middle East. The book was published in collaboration between the Middle East Institute and UCF and examines the changing relationship between the three regional powers of the area, an important issue, especially in today's political climate. So within the publication, Dr. Toll, you mentioned that there is a decline in U.S. influence and resolve to establish the stability in the Middle East. Um, in your opinion, Mr. Dumke, how is the power dynamic in the region affected by this? Well, you have a lot of, lot of changing elements, uh, a lot of elements at play right now. But most prominently, and one of the reasons we got to work on this, this particular project was the rules are being rewritten right now, and it's a sloppy process. And right now, a lot of the regional governments are figuring out how to deal with each other particularly how to deal with each other in absence of a strong U.S. presence in the region. Uh, the American presence for good, good or bad uh, has provided an element of stability over the last four decades at least, um, which has established rules. So a lot of times when you looked at, at Ankara and Cairo and Riyadh, um, rather than deal directly with each other, they often dealt with each other through Washington. Mm. Interesting. Um, so this question is directed at you, Dr. Toll. Um, has Turkey benefited from or feel threatened by previous U.S. presence in the Middle East in general? Well, Turkey has looked at uh, U.S. presence in, in the region, and particularly in its immediate neighborhood, in places like Iraq, for instance, from a very security-oriented point mm -hmm. of view, uh, and more specifically from a Kurdish point of view. Uh, given the, the, the sizable Kurdish minority there and, and, and Turkey, Kurdish minority in, in Turkey, uh, 
after U.S. intervention during the first Gulf War, for instance, uh, Turkey has suffered the consequences of that war. Mm -hmm. uh, initially, it supported uh, U.S. actions in Iraq, uh, but it became costly for Turkey after uh, the U.S.-led coalition established a, uh, an autonomous Kurdish region. Uh, that heightened Turkey's security concern, uh, concerns vis-à-vis -vis its own Kurdish minority. Mm -hmm. um, particularly, the, the defense establishment and security establishment in Turkey made the argument that this would um, encourage its own Kurdish minority to have a similar model of, of uh, autonomous rule. Uh, so I think that in many ways shaped Turkey's thinking Mm -hmm. uh, about U.S. presence in the region. And later in 2003, for instance, uh, after uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq, um, Turkish parliament had a debate, held a debate about whether to allow U.S. troops to Turkish uh, territory in, 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 uh, in Iraq invasion. Uh, and the debate was very instructive in the sense that um, the argument, the debate revolved around the issue of the Kurdish question uh, and the first Gulf War. So uh, both the opposition uh, and the government made the argument that, that, that whenever U.S. intervenes um, in Iraq, Kurds uh, are, are empowered, and this, that has had a negative impact on uh, Turkey's fight against the PKK or on Turkey, to, uh, the, the Kurds of Turkey and their demands um, from, from the Turkish government. So uh, that was one of the reasons why the Turkish parliament voted against uh, that motion in, in 2003. Uh, so when Turkey thinks about U.S. presence there, uh, again, the main reference point is, is the Kurdish question. Uh, but over the years, uh, especially in Syria, um, I think the way Turkey has seen what's happening in the region and U.S. presence there has, has shifted slightly. For instance, in Syria, for a long time, and after having uh, opposed to, to U.S. presence in Iraq, Turkey called for uh, U.S. involvement, more U.S. involvement, a forceful U.S. involvement in, in, in Syria. One of the breaking points in Turkey-U.S. ties was when President Obama decided to not to militarily respond to the use of chemical weapons by, by the Assad regime in 2013. That was a huge disappointment for Turkey uh, because then uh, the thinking in Ankara was that Turkey's number one goal was toppling the regime. And the understanding was that it could not have done that without uh, U.S. presence on the ground. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. was not willing to, to commit um, so, so I think over the years, Turkey's strategy has changed, um, and that was very much in line with uh, the change that has taken place in its view of the Kurdish question. So when Turkey started supporting more U.S. presence in Syria, for instance, Turkey was uh, in a different place in terms of its own Kurdish question. Mm -hmm. uh, after the conflict in Syria started, Kurdish question became a, a bigger security concern. Uh, for Turkey, but in response to that, 
President Erdogan launched a Kurdish opening, for instance. And I think that was a quite wise strategy. And the thinking was that if we fail to find a peaceful resolution to our own problem, we will always remain vulnerable to um, the decisions and actions of regional actors. Mm -hmm. So that was the thinking. So there was a very um, constructive th thinking in terms of, of the Kurdish question. And that's why Turkey did not view a U.S. presence in Syria as a threat. Of course, that changed when uh, the U.S. decided to, uh, to uh, ally itself with the Syrian Kurds. That heightened Turkey's threat perception. And that's when Turkey started opposing U.S. presence. Mm -hmm. But things are changing again yeah. uh, on the ground <laughs> As they do. Um, which is interesting because um, as boots are coming off the ground, as they call it, um, the influence that the U.S. has is still very great. And in the book, actually, Mr. Dunkey, you said that um, Saudi Arabia, uh, for Saudi Arabia, U.S. is the most strategic partner, um, therefore affecting its relations um, in turn with um, Egypt and Turkey. So how is this um, explicitly so? Well, I, how long do we have to talk about U.S.-Saudi <laughs> relations? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a long-standing partnership that's uh, multi-dimensional, but you know, economic and security ties have always been very close, and that was for a number of reasons. One, I mean, energy being a, the prime one. Um, also, its containment of, of Iran uh, is, is another another uh, example. But if you go back, and, and we I kind of outline this in the chapter in the book, the U.S.-Saudi relationship has changed. The reason the rationale has changed somewhat over the reason mm -hmm. energy always being a constant uh, in the Cold War. Of course, uh, Egypt uh, aligned, uh, whether they wanted to or not, they were part of a non-aligned movement and eventually were receiving weapons from the Soviet Union. We, and as the United States, backed more conservative governments, and Riyadh was very important in that, that effort, and this kind of culminated, and discuss this in detail in, in the book, culminated in a civil war in Yemen, mm -hmm. where the Egyptians were on one side and Saudi-backed forces were on another. Um, now this has changed over time. Uh, President Sadat repositioned Egypt, uh, you had the Camp David process. Um, the threats in the Middle East changed. Iran you know, went from a country that was very close to the United States to a very hostile entity. Uh, you had the Iran-Iraq War, the first Gulf War, then you had the threat of Iraq. In all those cases, the security side, and again tied to energy, the U.S. and Saudis always were on the same page. We get to a point now, again, I go back to the rule of how the U.S. role is changing in the region. United Washington was seen as a force of stability. Conflicts were localized in many cases, so you prevented a big-scale uh, regional conflict. Um, and therefore, Washington was seen as a force of stability. You can't say that since 2003, since the invasion of Iraq. Actually, there's been a number of actions um, where the U.S. has actually can be seen as a force of instability in mm -hmm. many cases. Um, and you see that uh, explained in different ways, whether you look at Egypt, whether you look at Turkey, as, as Guno just was explaining about Turkey's perception of Washington has changed. Um, so there's a lot to say about the Saudi one in particular, but it's really about this kind of yeah. morphing relationship. Which is uh, very interesting, because I think in the book I recall you describing it as uh, Goldilocks foreign policy that Saudi has. Um, kind of because they adjust towards the changing context that they're in, kind of mitigating threats. And um, does the kingdom's moderate approach on this uh, risk aversion prevent them from becoming kind of like emerging as that superpower in the region? 
Well, this is, uh, yeah, when I, when I was referring to that in the book, it was saying the Goldilocks in that it was not too hot, not yeah. too cold, trying to keep a, a balance and keep things even keeled. Um, they were also very cautious in their decision making. Mm -hmm. uh, that has changed, though, quite significantly since the emergence of Mohammed bin Salman. Mm. Um, so it, this is a sharp departure from traditional Saudi decision making. This is Saudis assuming a more decisive is kind of the, the, the word that's always used, mm -hmm. decisive decision, decision making. Some would say reckless in many cases. I would say if you step back and kind of take emotions out of it, and you can criticize Mohammed bin Salman or compliment him based, based on the different policies he's, he's advocating. But the reality is Saudi Arabia sees a situation in which they can't rely solely on the United States to kind of mm -hmm. settle things, so they have to do it themselves. It's time to step up. We've relied on others for so long, so we need to assume our position. In doing so, errors will be made, miscalculations will be made, but it, the hope, of course, if you want to look at this in an optimistic sense, that there are adjustments over time and they kind of re have a, find a position that's more comfortable. They see themselves as a regional power, um, but it's a different position than they've played, a different role than they've played in the region before. Okay, so kind of, um focusing on the powers in the region and eliminating the U.S. from the equation. Um, what cause do you think that, or what are some of the common perspectives that all of these powers share that where they can be united on one front? Even. It's really difficult. I mean, yeah. we, so when we were working on the book, I came across uh, this book that called um, this partnership uh, between Turkey, Egypt, and and Saudi Arabia, the Sunni vanguard. Mm -hmm. uh, and I found, I've always found that, that conceptualization very problematic uh, because I don't think there, is the, the, there ever was a Sunni vanguard. <laughs> and uh, in, because Turkey's relationship with the region, for decades it's been very complicated. Uh, but since the ruling party came to power, it was a new era. Uh, the, the relationship between the, the peoples of, of Turkey and the region has changed dramatically. The way Turkey has seen uh, the region and was seen by the region has changed um, uh, dramatically. But uh, still, Turkey's relationship with uh, different countries in, in the region is, uh, is, is complicated. For instance, if, you, uh, if you're going to talk about the Sunni vanguard, um, there were efforts uh, by by the Saudis, for instance, in 2015, to enlist Turkey's support and to form in in their fight against Iran. Um, and and Turkey at the time seemed willing to join that Sunni camp mm -hmm. uh, because the goal there was Turkey was so concerned about rising influence uh, uh, of Iran, mainly because of what was going on. Uh, in, in Syria and the Iranian presence in Syria and Iraq, Turkey was very much concerned about that. And initially, they thought that it was a good idea to team up with, with countries like Saudi, Saudi Arabia uh, to, to counterbalance uh, Iran, Iranian role in the region. Mm -hmm. but, but they soon realized that Turkey's relationship with Iran is, is a lot more complicated. And, and there were limits to what t Turkey can do in terms of counterbalancing Iran. If you look at Turkey-Iran relationship, it is, they have, they, they always were uh, major uh, policy disagreements. And there was an element of competition between the two countries, but they managed to contain uh, 
uh, those disagreements and compartmentalize that relationship because they also have, they are uh, trade partners, energy partners. Uh, but aside from that, I think um, none of them really, neither Iran nor Turkey wanted to confront each other. Uh, and uh, and there was an element of ideology here too, given the AKP is coming from an Islamist background. Mm -hmm. The way uh, Turkey's Islamists has seen Iran has been complicated. On the one hand, you have Islamists who really romanticize the Iranian revolution. And on the other, they have seen, uh, given the, uh, the extra dose of Sunni sectarianism among Turkish Islamists, they've seen Iran as a Persian, uh, nationalist uh, Shiite power more than anything else. So that prevented them from seeing Iran as, as a model. So even, even within the ruling party, there is not just one uniform view of Iran. There is not one uniform view of, of, of Saudi Arabia. So that's why it was never very easy for, for Turkey to join a camp mm -hmm. uh, in the region. Uh, there was, I mean, until recently, uh, again, people are talking about uh, Sunni powers coming together and, and confronting Iran. But on the other hand, Turkey is now leading initiatives such as um, uh, led by Iran uh, and, and, and Qatar. They launched a, a, a summit, an Islamic summit in Kuala Lumpur recently. And they made the argument that this was again uh, OIC. So it's just all these complicated relationships that Turkey has had because of its history, because of the imperial history, that it's really difficult to pinpoint where Turkey stands on on uh, on these regional alliances and blocks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So regarding Turkey, um, it has a history of Westernization, and I read in the book that that kind of isolated them from the region because they were kind of leaning towards. Um, more Western principles like kind of um, outlawing some religious dress and kind of leaning towards that direction. But under Erdogan, it seems as though many are calling it creeping Islamization, where the country is kind of leaning towards, like you said, a more Islamist um, standpoint. So does this alter the dynamics of the region? How does the relationship change because of it? And um, I also read that what was something that was interesting, not to um, add too much onto this question, but um, there was some support of the Muslim bro Brotherhood that kind mm -hmm. of isolated that, yeah. actually, which did the opposite of what um, was expected because before, um, the Muslim Brotherhood was kind of a uniting front that um, Egypt and Saudi had, but I guess the distaste kind of mm -hmm. altered before Turkey um, kind of caught up or rose up to the occasion. So could you explain more of that dynamic? Well, that's a great question, and I think uh, the... the, the um the gist of what you're asking is the role, whether ideology is played, mm -hmm. is playing a role, has played a role in Turkey's, in the way uh, Turkey is, has seen the region. And yes, it, it has. But I think the division has not been that clear cut because Turkey started engaging the Middle East before the AKP came to power. It started in 1999 with Ismail Cem, who was the, the foreign uh, minister of a, a social democratic party. And the idea there was to have a constructive relationship with its immediate neighbors, starting from Syria, for instance. Um, so when the AKP came to power, um, many people expected an Islamist foreign policy outlook. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I make the argument that ideology has played a role in AKP's thinking. But 
It didn't start right after the AKP came to power in 2002. In fact, if you look at AKP's foreign policy starting from 2002, we can divide it into two um, eras. The first one being from 2002 to 2011. And that was when ideology did not play an outsized role. In fact, the AKP decided to stick to the, the pro-Western, uh, the secularist agenda. Mm -hmm. And that had something to do with the power struggle that the AKP was going through at home. So the idea was that I cannot not deviate too much from, um, from Turkey's pro-Western, pro-EU foreign policy, because the AKP was still quite vulnerable vis-a-vis uh, the secularist elite at home. The military, yeah. for instance, was calling the shots. And we are talking about a government that um, was, uh, it comes from an Islamist background, uh, and the, the, the previous Islamist governments, for instance, the one in 1995, was forced to, uh, the prime minister was forced to step down. And his foreign policy choices, um, the Islamist prime minister at the time, uh, Erbakan, his foreign policy choices really affected the way the military has seen it and, in, and, and later in, in closure of the party. So that's why the, when the AKP came to power, it was quite um, cautious and, and wanted, to, wanted to pursue a very balanced policy. So if you look at all the major foreign policy decisions that the party has made until 2011, uh, vis-a-vis -vis European Union, uh, Cyprus, even Syria, uh, it, it would have been, uh, it would not have been different under a, an opposition uh, party government, for instance. Uh, there were some ideologically oriented foreign policy decisions here and there, such as hosting Hamas, for instance, or Turkey playing a, a more active role in in organization on, on, uh, in OIC. So that raised eyebrows among uh, the secularist establishment, but they weren't considered to be revolutionary. But starting from 2011, that, that changed. Because in to, by, by 2011, the AKP had already consolidated power, had, capture, had captured all state institutions, including uh, civilian bureaucracy, and had emasculated the military, uh, had captured media. So. Uh, starting from 2011, it did not feel vulnerable vis-a-vis -vis the secularist establishment anymore. And that's when it could afford to embark on an uh, Islamist domestic and foreign policy. So starting from 2011, um, we see um, uh, Islamism playing a, a bigger role yeah. in Erdogan's decision making. In Syria, for instance, Turkey backed Muslim Brotherhood. If it was 2004, 2005, Erdogan could not afford to do that mm -hmm. uh, in, in Egypt. So the thinking there was that, okay, we are safe and secure at home. And the, the regional context offers us an opportunity to expand our influence. So we are going to build on our Islamist network to make sure that Islamist governments come to power. So that will not only make us an important and maybe a, a superpower, in the region, but will benefit it uh, economically too. So that was the mm -hmm. thinking. So uh, my, uh, that was a long answer, but my short answer is, is uh, the ideology played a role um, in AKP's thinking, uh, but only after uh, the ruling party and Erdogan f felt uh, strong enough vis-a-vis -vis his political opponents. Uh, yeah, I, I just would, would throw in there, when you look at, at Egypt and Saudi, 
and, and Turkey for that matter, it's how religion's been used as a political tool as well. Th throw out their ideology on a personal level or what their beliefs are, it's how this has actually been employed in, in the political process. Saudi Arabia traditionally, uh, obviously there are very little separate, it's, it, it is the, for the uh, legitimacy of the royal family is derived for, mm -hmm. from its uh, connection to Islam, its, its custodian of the, the holy mosques. Um, it's there, and the Muslim Brotherhood and political parties they housed throughout the 60s and 70s largely to combat leftists in the region, mm -hmm. particularly Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood members. When they got closer to Egypt, they didn't really need them anymore, yeah. so it became inconvenient. In Egypt, um, you know, right now you see Egypt traditionally has had very strong military involvement in the government, if not outright rule, and so therefore any religion coming into it has been a threat. Turkey had much the same experience until Erdogan. So mm -hmm. you understand why they naturally, the governments that exist today in Ankara and Cairo, would have, view each other suspiciously. Because yeah. one is looking at, this is what would happen to me if I don't watch my back. Mm -hmm. They both are, so. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too because um, another um, ideological factor that played a role in the region that I read in your chapter actually, Mr. Dumpke, is uh, anti-communism or pro-communism, I guess, in Egypt's case, depending on what was more, um, I guess, available or no convenient to them at the time. So could you um, elaborate more on how communism also sh historically shaped the regional dynamic? Well, first of all, Nasser was, was not a communist. Yeah. Um, which is kind of, we, we kind of lump him in the Soviet camp, but that isn't necessarily a fair comparison. Mm -hmm. But in the Cold War context, he positioned himself in that camp in order to get weapons, in order to get economic support, um, largely because he, he was also fighting a couple other elements. One is, you know, this is the legacy of imperialism. Egypt's trying to completely break free. The other is, is the, the actual hot war with Israel that was going on mm -hmm. there. So there, there, there's reasons for that. Um, there is so the communist element perhaps is 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 overstated a little. I mean, there's been only one communist government in the Arab world, and that was that was in Yemen, and that was even not really a Soviet uh, clone necessarily. Um, in terms of the forces of nationalism, which Nasser championed, that's that's a different element because you saw that in Syria, you saw it in Iraq that forced a coup that to the monarchy in a very violent fashion, which threatened the Saudi monarchy, which threatened the Jordanians. So really it's nationalism as opposed mm -hmm. to communism. And nationalism as defined by this revolutionary movement, again, large, largely this is right after uh, the end of, of colonial or imperialist presence of, of Britain in particular. Um, so it was a reaction to that. Yeah. But it's a different history in Egypt than it is in Saudi Arabia, yeah. for example. So they're reacting to different things. And when you do that, um, that caused a lot of the traditional tension there. Because mm -hmm. Nasser was leading, leading a really different call than the Saudis, which wanted to kind of maintain their own rule in their own area. Yeah. Yeah, nationalism is kind of a big issue in that area because um, ever since after World War One, the lines were kind of roughly drawn when people kind of drew out and kind of trying to have to satisfy for different problems and cl close them loose ends. So that kind of ethnic line drawing wasn't really taken into account. But just to wrap things up really quickly, um, this um, publication, I really enjoyed reading it, and I would love if you guys could tell me where um, 
UCF students or any listeners of this podcast can find it and where we can get access to it? Well, that's a question for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are, so we'll, we'll print the book okay. and it will be in, uh, on Amazon uh, starting okay. from, from March, I believe. Awesome. Amazing. So March, look out for the book. It, again, it is called um, Aspiring Powers, Regional Rivals, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the New Middle East. Um, well, Dr. Toll, Mr. Dumkey, it has been an absolute p- pleasure to speak with you today. And we thank you so much for being here and sharing your guys' experiences with us. Um, if you want to learn more about today's guest, our mission, our, or our program, you can visit us at the PMBF website or go follow any of our social media pages. For the Middle East and South Asia Initiative here at UCF, this is Roxanne Trombetta, and thank you for listening. Thank you.